Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Two Strike Noise. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeff Paulson, uh, sitting with me in a normal outfit this week, uh, which cannot be said earlier this week, is my co-host, Mark A. Johnston. Mark, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm I'm doing great. Why? What's going on? Uh, well, I usually don't dress up in in the monkey suit all week. Oh, so. oh are we starting the show? Jeez, man. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even notice the light was on. Oh, that's embarrassing. Uh, yeah, no, I like, uh, I, I just, I rented the monkey suit and I uh, want to get full use out of it. Now, most people, when you say monkey suit, that just means a suit and tie. So we're just going to let everybody think that that's what we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. If you happen to look at, you know, any of my social media, you might be surprised. Anyway, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, monkey suits are very, uh, they can be very comfortable if you have the right one. Let's just put it that way. The life of an actor. You... That's right. <laughs> As I like to do at the beginning of each show, I want to give you an out in case you don't want to talk about baseball history, which this entire podcast is dedicated to. So this week, we can talk about baseball history or we can just stop doing podcasts until the Oakland A's win a freaking wild card game. Well, you know, I would have agreed to either one uh, just a week ago, but uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to go with. Uh, I, I actually, I actually think I want to do the whole baseball history thing this week. You're going to keep doing it. All right, that's yeah. good because I don't know about you, but I did a lot of research this week. Yeah, so. I, I did too. I did a lot of reading, and you know how much I hate reading. I do, I do. But uh, let's so let's start out with with BP before we get into the game. Start out with our. Uh, our betting practice segment here. I've got a couple of short things. First of all, this one's a real short one, but I thought it was interesting. Uh, I found an article about a couple of oddities that have popped up through different events at the Big A, the uh, the Angels' home in Anaheim Stadium. This one was particularly amusing. After a second concert by The Who in March of 1976, groundskeepers at the Big A in Anaheim reported that more than 100 marijuana plants sprouted on the playing (laughs) infield. (laughs) That's awesome. That is too funny. What are the the odds? That's just random. That is just funny that... <laughs> just it's opening day and they're like wait why are there weeds oh there's there's definitely weed yes yeah we, we got weed weed <laughs> wow and the grounds crew worked very late that night but they were really yellow <laughs> about it <laughs> they were they were okay with it yeah another thing so we're this is the final postseason right now that we're in the middle of of the 2010s next year will be obviously 2020 so it's a new decade been reviewing a lot of kind of the leaderboard of just different stats over the last decade and to be honest the one that's most interesting to me is batting average champs so the the guys that won the batting title uh, for each year for the national league it is pretty well spread out christian yelich has won the last two batting titles in the national league mm-hmm of the last decade, though, five batting champs have come from the Colorado Rockies, and they're all different players. Wow. I thought that was interesting. I mean, obviously, Coors Field is known more for the long ball, but it's a huge field, so a lot of balls yeah. are going to drop there that might not drop elsewhere. But Charlie Blackman, DJ LeMahieu, Justin Morneau, remember he was a Rocky for like a season or two, 
Michael Kadire and Carlos Gonzalez all won batting titles while with the Rockies during the 2010s. The American League, a lot less parody. I, I did not realize that Miguel Cabrera won four batting titles, including three in a row, and then four out of five. That's that's funny because now that you mention it, it makes sense, but I had never really put it together, no. I think Miguel Cabrera is really kind of, I don't want to say forgotten, but I think he's overlooked at what an incredible batter he is i mean you know obviously he's never been a great fielder been relegated to dh or first base for the past couple of years but you know he was the first the first uh player to win a triple crown in when was it since ted williams and then to win four batting titles in five years and then to only have that run be interrupted by jose altuve who won three in four years wow not a lot of, like I said, not a lot of parody in the American League in terms of who's winning the, the batting title each year. But I just thought that was interesting, the differences between the, the two leagues there with that stuff. I believe Tony Gwynn won something like 12 of 17 batting titles when he was playing. Jeez. So I, I, he kind of he made it difficult. But in there, in between in there, I think Terry Pendleton won one. And um, um, I think, Willie McGee, wasn't there a year Willie McGee won one. Yeah, he did. And Galarraga played for Colorado one year, and I think he won. Yeah, I think he played for a couple of years in Colorado before he went to the Braves. But yeah. uh, just interesting to to look back on the past ten years, just on the batting title. Yeah, that's that's interesting. All right, it's it, it, definitely Colorado is a place to hit. I I don't like to pick on it like other people do. People oh, go to Colorado and and you can hit the ball out of the park. Well, it's not it's not like that. Like in its entirety, it's still a great place to play baseball. I, I like Coors Field. I like watching games there. Absolutely. Also, just interesting that the hardest hit ball of the entire regular season that we just wrapped up, this isn't a big surprise except for the fact that he got like three at-bats all season. Was it, it came off the bat of Giancarlo Stanton. But the funny thing is it came off his bat in the first inning of the first game on opening day, March 28th. <laughs> that's that's very interesting <laughs> that sets a standard that's pretty it, difficult so it came off his bat at 120.6 miles per hour the second uh, fastest was 118.9 by Vlad Guerrero Jr. the third fastest was off the bat also of Giancarlo Stanton at 118.9 as well followed by 118.7 by Vladimir Guerrero Junior again, so two players have the four hardest hit Jeez. balls of the season. Wow, that's some that's some strength right there, man. Those are some hard hit baseballs, and they were all all four of them were singles. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Just get out of the way. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> the the uh, Vladimir Guerrero's second one was at a 15.7 degree launch angle. The others were 3.3, 4.5, and 7.5. So that is get out of the way if they're at you. Because <laughs> those <laughs> are awesome. line drives. Yeah, I love the StatCast stuff. A couple of other things that happened this week. So I was doing some research for something else, and I came across a couple of rules. We had that great rules episode a a little while ago but these are old rules that are no longer in effect and i had zero idea about either of these rules the first one 
these days we take for granted that the home team bats last, right? Right. If if you're playing a home game, the visiting team bats first and you get last, you know, you're if you need to, you get to bat in the bottom of the ninth inning. Did you realize that only until 1950 that was not the case? I had no idea. Yeah, I didn't either. Prior to that, it was the home team's option. No kidding. So the home team, if they wanted to, could have said, I want to bat first <laughs> until 1950. Really? No, ki- I had no idea. Yeah, so believe it or not, the very first game played by the New York Yankees, they were initially, remember, called the Highlanders. In 1903, the New York Yankees batted last because the home team Washington Senators chose to bat first. <laughs> you know, that would be very confusing to a scoreboard operator. I'm just saying. Yeah, I know. From from our position, it's it's not really something you I want mean, to do. The, the whole idea of, of the, the white uniforms... Uh, this year in Players Weekend completely threw me off when I was when I was trying to figure out who the home team was. At first glance, it was always very confusing. I can't imagine trying to keep track of who the home team was when you don't know who it's going to be. And what if you're playing a series and the first game the home team bats first, the second game they bat last? Yeah, see, very that's too much for me. I'd have to find a new career. That is really... I remember when I first got into baseball, I just assumed they flipped a coin like football. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, those home teams, they sure win that, that coin toss a lot. <laughs> I, I remember being at a game in Vancouver. It was a AAA game. And the lady behind me lamenting that she had gotten there too late to see the coin flip. Because <laughs> that's <laughs> always the highlight of any game where there's a coin flip. Right. Uh, another rule that I was... I guess I was vaguely aware of this, but I didn't really put two and two together until I was actually doing research for this week's podcast and the gentleman I'm going to talk about. You used to be able to throw a base runner out by hitting them with a ball if they were not occupying a base. So it's like kickball. Yeah. 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 So it's like like kickball. Remember, you'd throw that big rubber ball and you'd Mm -hmm. like be kind of dodging and they'd throw it and you'd try and jump as high as you can and stuff. That's right. Try and get out of the way. Just imagine that with a baseball. Oh, God. That had to hurt. Yeah. But I mean, okay. So this took place a long time ago and I clearly didn't do all my research because I didn't look to see uh, when this rule was, was outlawed. But I can imagine this being great for outfielders. Because, you know, you're in right field and somebody's, you know, taking a hard turnaround second and they're digging for third. If you can hit him before he gets at base, <laughs> he's out. That's true. That's true. And with some of the guys that we've talked about, the best arms, the most accurate arms, that could be happening quite a bit. Jesse Barfield takes somebody's head off, you know, going from second to third. I'm going to talk about Ed Delhante today, and he had a great arm. So I and he had a ton of outfield assists, and this is why because all he had to do was hit the guy. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now if you're an infielder and you're doing this, think about that. If you uh, if you just nub it out in front of home plate, and Sean Dunstan is charging and you're running down the line and he's like screw that i'm just gonna hit you instead of throwing it to first right. base <laughs> this was a much more painful game back then yeah but remember also that the ball was different then that's uh, you true, know yes. it probably didn't and and guys just didn't throw as hard either so right. it probably isn't as dangerous as it sounds today but still interesting yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, that's uh, I mean, I had I remember, like you said, I remember hearing something about it, but I'd never put it together. It's pretty funny. All right, so this part in uh, BP, we like to take a look at people who have made debuts on this day. So this podcast is premiering on October 8th, and guess what? What? There were a couple of guys that made debuts, but none of them were were any sooner than the 1940s, and I hadn't heard of any of them. No, no, no October debuts. No, so we are going to go with one birthday, though, and oh, this okay. really means probably more to me than anybody else because i'm an a's fan but uh, almedo signs was born this day so happy birthday to almedo signs absolutely interesting note almedo signs and myself share the same birthday well well happy birthday to you jeff that was my uh, way I, my cheap way of getting somebody to wish me happy birthday i i i knew it was gonna be your birthday i just was waiting yeah to, yeah, no, you didn't, well. because I don't think we've ever... I know we've never worked a game together on my birthday, because no. that would mean the Mariners were playing in October. So That's right. Yeah, so yeah. you know that hasn't happened. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't work together in 01. <laughs> All right, let's let the grounds crew come out and do their thing, get the field ready, and we're going to jump into the top of the first inning. And uh, we did not flip a coin. We did not roll a dice. We did not spin a wheel today. We simply took a vote. Yes. And uh, it was a tie because there's only two of us, yes. but we're going to have you go ahead and do your part first. So what do, what do you want to talk about today, Mark? Um, this is kind of weird. I, I did a little research on the Mexican leagues. I found out, I found an interesting guy by the name of Jorge Pascal. And uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about Mr. Pascal today or Pascal, I should say. Good. I, I, have, I have no idea what this is going to be about. So I'm interested. Okay. Jorge Pascal actually kind of forced the hand of the owners in the United States to racially integrate before they were ever really ready to do so. And how he did that was that he decided he was going to throw a lot of money around in the Mexican League, and he was going to integrate before them. So here's kind of the story behind that. A little bit about uh, Mr. Pascal. Uh, Jorge Pascal was born in Veracruz, Mexico. He and he had a bunch of brothers. They, uh, him and four of his brothers ran a cigar factory and they started doing, um, like George Costanza lied and said he did. They do, they were importer exporters, but they actually did it. Um, uh, various no art vandalay going on here. No, art, art may have been part of it, but he, he is, uh, I've withheld his name. By the mid 1940s, they were worth about $30 million, which in the 40s was a pretty darn nice chunk of change. Wow. So they actually had bought a team called the Azules de Veracruz in the Mexican League, which means the Veracruz Blues, which I don't know if you've ever caught the Veracruz Blues, but I have, and man, it's sad. Just a little bit about the Mexican Leagues. They, uh, they were founded in 1925. Uh, they did not join the National Association of Professional Baseball Leagues, which is minor league baseball's governing body, until the 1950s. Um, in the 50s, they were uh, allowed into the uh, NAPBL, and they were designated a double-A league. By 1967, they were given AAA classification, which is what they are classified as right now. The Mexican League is not affiliated with any major league teams, but they are designated a AAA league. Did you know that? I did know that because right. I deal with I deal with uh, major league stats all the time and in my, in minor league stats. So yeah, I did know that one actually. There you go. All right, Pascal. He was. It's kind of an interesting guy. He uh, he. he 
he was sort of a big wealthy loved uh, loved the ladies uh, he was dating the biggest movie star in Mexico at the time he enjoyed uh, the attention and so on so he decided he was going to throw his money around as far as baseball and uh, he was going to turn the Mexican League into an elite organization and they had never ever posed a threat a competitive threat at all to the major leagues and they never had any real star players uh, until the late 30s. Now, in 1938, uh, Pascal went out and signed a, signed a guy named Satchel Paige. Hmm. I think we've talked about him <laughs> Maybe on the greatest show. pitcher of all time. <laughs> uh, he, he, he went out and he said he, he offered Satchel Paige $2,000 a month to play for him. Back then, this was an insane amount of money. So Satchel Paige jumped at the chance, came down to the Mexican League, and... Um, Started pitching for uh, Club Azules de Veracruz. He really did elevate the game after that because he started to see the value of the players that were in the United States that were not getting the chance to play in the big leagues, and that was the Negro Leagues. So the first thing he did was raid the Negro Leagues. He started throwing money out there at some of these great players. You know, the American teams were ignoring the richest resource baseball had available, and it was right in their backyard. Pasquale went straight to the pocketbook and he started throwing big money at the biggest players in the league. So, for example, Monty Irvin, uh, a, a great Negro League player, he came to the Mexican, uh, Mexican leagues in those years and I found a quote from him. He said, it was the first time in my life that I felt free. We could go anywhere we wanted, eat anywhere we wanted, do anything we wanted and not have to worry about anything. We just had a wonderful time and I owe that experience to Jorge Pasquale. Very interesting and, and very, uh, very cool. Negro League players were hailed really as heroes in Mexico. And they were uh, beloved players. They could, uh, they could go to the best restaurants. They could stay at the best hotels. It was, it was a complete opposite of what they were used to in the United States, where, you know, basically they were treated as second-class players, uh, second-class human beings, as we know. Pascal basically was kind of the George Steinbrenner of Mexico. He, uh, his import-export business had really gone into overdrive. Um, he was known as someone who just set his sights on something and always got it done. So what did he do next after he brought in all these wonderful black players? He decided he was going to raid the big league teams themselves. Ah. So he started throwing money out there. You know, he had already brought in, just as an example, he had brought in Josh Gibson, Ray Dandridge, Monty Irvin, Willie Wells, Cool Papa Bell. I mean, he had Josh Gibson, the greatest catcher in baseball history, arguably. He was, he was putting together these incredible teams. So all of a sudden, American big league players were looking at his money and saying, man, I could get a chance to play. I could head down there and, and uh, make a lot more money than I'm making here. But what would they have to do? They'd have to integrate. So guess what they did? A lot of white players from the big leagues came down and started playing for, uh, the, in the Mexican League instead. Uh, by 1940, there were 63 African-American players in Mexico, and between 37 and 46, more than 150 black U.S. players came to Mexico to play. Fourteen of them are now Cooperstown Hall of Famers. So, boy, did they have some quality baseball back then. Pascal offered some huge contracts to some players you may have heard of, Ted Williams, Bob Feller, Stan Musial, but they all uh, decided that they weren't going to go play in Mexico. They, they did not sign with Pascal, but he did sign some pretty top players, including New York Giants second baseman George Hausman, Max Lanier, 
Vern Stevens, and the Brooklyn Dodgers starting catcher, Mickey Owens. Overall, 27 major league players signed with Pascal, and they already had a lot of great Latino players that were under Major League Baseball's control that decided they'd be more fun to play in Mexico for more money. I found a, a Time Magazine story in 1946 that, uh, where Pascal uh, said he signed Owens for, and I quote, enough to retire in five years. Wow. So, yeah, and, and uh, in 1946, the first 24 games of the season drew 700,000 fans Jeez. to watch Negro League players and Mexican and other Latinos play against each other in the very first integrated league, and I would say probably some of the best baseball ever played. Players could actually make more money playing integrated baseball in Mexico at that time than they could playing race-respective leagues in the United States. Yeah, so uh, here's a, another quote I found from a paper in 1994 written by Professor Roberto Gonzalez Echeverria. He said, Pascal improved the quality of the Mexican game by developing a truly democratic, multi-ethnic league in which ability and the open market determined a player's worth. Now, how cool is that? Can you imagine ability determining a player's worth? That's amazing to me. They saw the major leagues, that's they, they saw this threat coming and they actually had to start considering integration because Pascal wanted to form a competitive major league. He basically wanted to say, you're a major league, so are we. We're just as good as you guys. And he started putting together teams that the major league owners knew could be and would be competitive with theirs. So they actually had to say, look, we need to start integrating or we're going to get left behind by the integrated teams. The very next year, 1947, is when the Brooklyn Dodgers brought in Jackie Robinson. So Jorge Pascal basically forced the hand of the major league owners by threatening to build teams that were better than the quality of the just white teams in the major leagues. And in order to keep up, American baseball had to integrate. And that is the story of Jorge Pascal and how he forced integration to come sooner to the United States than it most likely would have otherwise. Now, wow. in the sad, yeah, and the sad ending to this story, as all of my stuff ends tragically, Mr. Pascal died in a plane crash in 1955, was inducted into the Mexican Professional Baseball Hall of Fame in 1971. So the next time you think Mexican League Baseball, think about the man, Jorge Pascal. I have never heard of him, and <laughs> it, he legitimately is a big part of integration in the major leagues. So that is Huge. crazy that I've never heard of him. I, I hadn't either. And I ran across him when I was just researching Mexican baseball. And I was completely blown away by what this guy had pulled off. It, it's pretty impressive. And, and a story that, uh, like you said, I had no idea it even existed. Wow. Like, so I, I remember when, when we did the uh, Satchel Page episode we talked about how he would go play in cuba and south america during the off season because they he and other negro league stars were were uh, treated like royalty and, and were paid well down there it's it's kind of akin to the way that wnba players are treated here in the united states where they're you know, nobody really watches the WNBA. Nobody, right. you know, they don't earn a lot of money. And then as soon as the WNBA season is over here, they all go play in Russia where yeah. these billionaires just have, they, they just throw money to try and build the best team and they make all of their, their money there. It sounds like that's exactly kind of the same kind of thing. 
Yeah, it's uh, it was uh, just all these great resources were right next door for him, and he was smart enough to go. <laughs> you know, all this this stupid bigotry stuff can step aside. I wanted some baseball teams, man. Yeah, that's crazy. Isn't that awesome? So yeah, so let's talk about quickly the uh, the Mexican League because I remember you and I specifically we at one point a year or two ago were looking through Mexican League. Uh, teams because they they had a couple of former major leaguers that were kind of trying to hang on there. There was one team in particular that it seemed like had seven or eight former athletics on it, including one of my favorites of all time, Derek Barton. Another name that played in the Mexican League this year because he nobody signed him in the offseason is Chris Carter. Oh, Remember wow. yeah. Sure. Big, Big guy led the league in home runs and strikeouts, and yeah, he'd hit so about two hundred, but pop a bunch of home runs. Yeah, so he played the entire year uh, in in Mexico for Monclava. Monclava. He played yeah. one hundred and twenty games this year, hit forty nine home runs, wow. <laughs> drove in one hundred and nineteen, and he only struck out one hundred and fifty six times, and he well, walked one hundred and fifteen times. No, what? <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah, so his OPS was 1.158. Now, obviously, you're not getting the the best competition in the Mexican leagues, but it's still a legitimate it's a legitimate league, and like you Absolutely. said, it's considered AAA, and they do play some good baseball down there. So uh, you bet. Yeah, that was really interesting. I, I well, again, no idea. I'm glad you enjoyed it because I I certainly had a lot of fun researching it. All right, so let's shift gears now from. We're, we're going to go back from your would you, 1940s, 19, mid-1940s. We're going to go all the way back to before the turn of the century. We're going so, in the way back machine. Get in the way back machine. Have you ever heard of a gentleman uh, named Ed Delahanty? You know, I, I recall, I think, my father talking about an Ed Delahanty. So Ed Delahanty, if you look at career leaders in batting average which I know we try to stay away from batting averages being a real measure of, of somebody's talent with a bat these days. But, you know, traditionally and for non-baseball, you know, kind of casual baseball fans, batting average is still the thing that anybody will ask you. Well, what was his batting average? Right. Ed Delahanty is number five on the all-time list. It goes oh, wow. Ty Cobb, Rogers Hornsby, Shoeless Joe Jackson, Lefty O'Doul, and then... Ed Delahanty. Wow. So he has a higher lifetime batting average than Tris Speaker, Ted Williams, Babe Ruth. Maybe you've heard of these guys. <laughs> so let's talk about Ed Delahanty, uh, sometimes referred to as Big Ed or the King of SWAT. So this is obviously before Babe Ruth was around or at least playing <laughs> baseball. So instead of the Sultan, he was the King. The of King of SWAT. SWAT. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the King of SWAT, a, a B-side for Dire Straits. That's right. So Ed Delahanty was basically Mike Trout of the 1890s, if you want to put it in, in the concept of a player that's playing today. He grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. He played baseball for a couple of semi-pro teams around the state before being signed to a $2,000 contract by the Philadelphia Phillies in 1888. And yes, that's definitely the Phillies, not the athletics. So he toiled... Uh, his first couple of years in the bigs uh, before jumping to the rival Players League two years later where he batted 296. Well, that league folded and Ed had to go back to the Phillies. He played okay, but he knew he could do better. Uh, 
So instead of just showing up for spring training and getting in shape there, as seemingly has been the routine for over a century now for players until recently, Delahanty started to train during the offseason, and he came into camp in 1892 in great shape and ready to go. It paid off big time. Ed hit 306 and led the league in triples with 21 and slugged at a 495 clip. So I, I was looking at his numbers here, and if he did this today, first thing everybody would think of would be steroids. <laughs> so sure. looking, I, I'm looking at his WRC plus for his four, first four years in the big leagues. It goes 80, 94, 184. So 100 is the league average. So he was right at or below the league average. And then he comes in after deciding he's going to train in the offseason. <laughs> he goes 142, 151, 151, 177, 177. And he had another season with 177 a couple of years later. I mean, that is an incredible jump. Wow. I don't remember ever seeing a WRC plus of 177. I'm sure there's been some, but I mean, this is just a huge, huge jump for him. He got a hold of some snake oil or something. Well, there's also another thing. Uh, while he did come in better shape and he's a great player, uh, this is also the year where they moved the pitchers. I'm not even going to say mound because it wasn't a mound at that point. They pitched off of the flat ground they moved the pitcher's mound uh pitcher's rubber we'll say that back 10 feet and up on a mound instead of on flat ground so offense around the league went up after this happened but nobody's offense jumped quite as much as ed's for the next decade delahante was an absolute superstar he was joined in the phillies lineup by the original slide billy hamilton uh, he was also joined by nap lajouet and sam thompson in 1899, Delahanty led the league with a 410 average. This marked the third time he finished with an average above 400, but it was only the first time that he'd won the batting title. He would win one more in 1902 as well. He also led the league in home runs twice with totals of 19 in 1893 and 13 in 1896. So remember, again, this is before Babe Ruth, and that 19 was actually, I believe, the record until Babe Ruth broke it. That 1896 season, he was just the second player in history to hit four home runs in a single game, doing so on July wow. 13th against the Chicago Colts, who were the Cubs from 1890 to 97. They played at the West Side Grounds, where it was 560 feet to center field. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, in that four home run game, two of his home runs were inside the park jobs, as you can imagine, just get it in the gap sure. and you can pretty much walk backwards around the bases and make it. Uh, for his feet, he was rewarded with four free boxes of chewing gum, one for each home run he hit. Well, righteous box. Yeah, so there you go. Three years later, on May 13th, 1899, Del Hante hit four doubles in a single game, making him the only player to achieve that feat as well as the four home runs in one game. Delahante was on his way to a lifetime batting average of 346. As I said, that's the fifth best mark in baseball history. Ed hit the ball hard, real hard. It is said that he once broke George Pickney's ankle, a third baseman, with a line drive. Ouch. There's also a story that he once split a ball in two, which for someone who hits a ball that hard and in the dead ball era, that could very well be true. 
And there's also an unconfirmed story that he had a clause in his contract that he was not allowed to bunt. He hit the ball so hard. They're like, if you bunt, we're going to fine you. (laughs) That's fun. That's awesome. Trouble started to brew for Delahante around the turn of the century. First off, uh, Ed was a bit of a drinker. And and that's really putting it mildly. He was an alcoholic, I think it's pretty safe to say. He also had quite a temper, and he was also known to be quite a, a ladies' man, even though he was married. So the Phillies, with all their talent, could never quite capitalize or win a pennant. They had plenty of offense, but they just didn't have the pitching to go along with it. The Phillies' owner, John Rogers, was also kind of a skinflint which, by the way, is a phrase I never heard of till my wife called me that a little while ago, and I had to look it up. <laughs> That's awesome. I so, didn't know you were one. I guess I am. Uh, Rogers refused to pay his players what they thought they were worth. But, you know, what could players do at that point? There was no free agency unless you're right. traded or released. You're stuck. You couldn't go to the Mexican leagues yet. Nope, not yet. <laughs> uh, well, Ed and several of his teammates jumped ship to the upstart American League after the season. Delahante had a lot of pull and recruited many of his Philly teammates to join him. They all became free agents in the American League, and the Washington Senators were the lucky team that signed Ed to a $4,000 contract with a $1,000 signing bonus. Nice. Beyond being a drunkard, beyond being a unfaithful, I guess, uh, person, Ed also had a bit of a gambling issue. Oops. So... All that money disappeared pretty quickly. Ed was uh, also involved in one of the most prolonged batting title battles ever. In 1902, Ed battled with former teammate Knapp Lajaway, who was at that point playing for Cleveland. At the end of the season, stats showed Knapp had beat Delahante with a 387 batting average versus Ed's 372 average. But those stats weren't official. It would be two months later that the official stats were released, and they showed Big Ed winning the title by seven points. So I guess somebody had essentially like forgotten to carry the one or something earlier <laughs> when they figured out this. Wow. The, the totals. At the time, that set Delahante apart as being the only player to ever win the batting title in both the American League and the National League. At some point later on, though, somebody decided to go back and recalculate the numbers from this year and found that Lajoie had actually beat Ed by two points. And when I say, you know, they did this later, I'm talking about like 10 years ago. I I remember (laughs) when this story came out. Holding them to today's standards, though, Delahante would have won anyway, as Lajoie didn't have enough plate appearances to actually qualify if today's standards applied. So it's it's a bit fuzzy still but so after the 1902 season ed's wife noreen took sick as i mentioned ed was a bit of a gambler and the couple's savings had been wasted away on horses and alcohol he needed money and he needed it quick delahante signed a three-year deal with the new york giants for six thousand dollars some reports say it might have been even upwards of eight thousand dollars and Four thousand of it was in advance, so that he had some cash to pay for his wife's bills and inevitably uh, some for the bottle and the ponies. Sure. More bad news, though. Before the 1903 season began, the American League and the National League agreed to honor each other's contracts. So what that meant is that meant that the deal that Ed had just signed with New York had been voided. It also meant he was forced to pay back that $4,000 advance that they had given him that he had already blown through. Uh, 
His rights reverted back to the Senators, where his salary called for Ed to only make $4,500 that season. He had already received 600 of that as an advance originally, so essentially Delahante had to pay $100 to play that season. So, wow. <laughs> that's not good also for somebody that's broke and has the uh, kind of issues that Big Ed had. This, this is obviously well before the, the powerful baseball union, labor's union, uh, had any say whatsoever. Obviously, yeah, definitely. So Delahante fell off the training regiment. He injured himself, and he often feuded with his senator's manager, Tom Loftus. He was moved from his preferred position of left to right field, and he started hitting the bottle even harder, and his behavior became increasingly and alarmingly erratic. The midsummer peace between the American League and National League ended, and Delahante saw this as a chance to once again jump to the American League and make some of that money that he desperately needed. And he went on this epic bender. So just more alcohol all the time, and he reportedly threatened to kill himself. And so his teammates came to check in on him to make sure he was okay. His family was called, and he reportedly chased away his teammates with a knife when they came to check in on him. He also threatened to kill himself at this point. So obviously he's got some mental issues going on as well, and alcohol can't help. Like I said, Ed's mother is called in. His brothers, of which he had four brothers, also playing in the major leagues. So there wow. are five Delahantes that were all major league players. Pretty incredible. Yeah. But he continued down this path of self-destruction. A court eventually issued a ruling that the two separate leagues would have to honor each other's contracts. So Ed knew he wasn't going to be able to leave Washington. Resigned, Ed boarded a train to New York. He was going to go. He was going to plead his last case to see if he, there was any chance that he could leave the senators and go somewhere else to make more money. little bit telling when he got on this train, he left all of his possessions behind. All he did, he took a hat with him, a black Washington senator's hat. On the train to New York, he was drinking, he was smoking in cabins that he wasn't supposed to, causing a lot of problems. Uh, he broke the glass on the emergency brake cabinet. Finally, he passed out, but that wasn't the end of it, because this was a long train trip. He was leaving from Detroit all the way to New York, and to get there, the train would actually travel through Canada and then back down by Niagara Falls and down to New York City, so it's, it's a good haul. He passed out, but he woke back up because it was a long trip. He came to, stumbled into a cabin that was occupied by a woman sleeping, and he picked her up by the ankles and tried to drag her out of the cabin so that he could have the cabin. Well, the train conductor had had enough of this, so he stopped the train. For some reason, he stopped the train as soon as they got in Canada and said, we're in Canada, behave yourself, and left him there. <laughs> But okay. he left them right before they got to Niagara Falls. And this is where the interesting stuff comes in. There is a bridge that passes over, a, a train bridge that passes over Niagara Falls called the International Railway Bridge. It stretches 3,600 feet across the water leading to Niagara Falls. And this is where they chose to, to, to drop this drunk guy off at this, at the, right yes. by this bridge. Good by thinking. the Niagara Falls. Yeah. So, real smart. 
Mm-hmm. So Ed, still suffering the consequences of his heavy drinking, stumbles onto the bridge and starts walking across the bridge. Well, a night watchman encounters him in the middle of the bridge, and there are a lot of different accounts of what happened here. But the, the night watchman, his name was Sam Kinston, and he claims that he was looking for smugglers, and he tried to move Ed away from the edge of this bridge and shepherd him off. Not off the side, but, you know, off the bridge, fearing he might fall into the water. Well, Ed, being belligerent, didn't like to be told what to do. And the two apparently wrestled. They separated. And then Kingston lost sight of him in the dark. And then he heard something hit the water. Well, Ed's body uh, washed up downstream at the base of the Horseshoe Falls a week later. Uh, There are accounts that Delahanty was wearing some rings Originally, when he was on the train, those were missing. Delahanty's family blamed Kingston, saying that he robbed Ed before pushing him over the edge, but nothing was ever proved. Now, it might also be mentioned that the this night watchman, Sam Kingston, was also at one point wearing a Washington senator's hat, a black Washington senator's hat that was the same size as the one that Ed Delahanty wore. Hmm. So the train company took no... <laughs> no responsibility for kicking him off the train right in front of uh, Niagara Falls. Uh, nobody could ever prove anything that Sam Kingston did anything wrong. And unfortunately, that is the way that Sam Del Hante passed. And he was only 36 years old. Ed was selected to the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1945. And, uh, you know, really... you. Just looking at his stats here, he was just an incredible, incredible player. There you have it. That is the story of Big Ed, the King of SWAT, Delahante. Man, that that's a another tragic ending to such a great ball player. Yeah, I I mean, if, if when you get a chance, just go and look at his numbers because they are just and and look at them compared to the other players that were playing, you know, his contemporaries because he they are just. just uh, so much better head above everybody else yeah yeah i was just kind of looking over career wise he stole 456 bases yeah now yeah he and he was fast he was a five tool player but remember as i tell everybody uh, about sliding billy hamilton at this time if you were on first base and you advanced to third base on a single you got credit for a stolen base because the batter only hit a single, so you should have only advanced a second. So they considered it stealing if you went any further. So, yes, he's credited with those stolen bases, but they are not, a lot of them are not true. Ricky Henderson, uh, Tim Raines, stolen bases. Gotcha. And I love that. That's three old rules that we've discussed so so far on this. That's right. Old, decrepit, no longer used, weird rules that have gone by the wayside. Imagine that on a baseball history podcast, we bring up those kind of things. Nice. Even if it was an accident, we still did it. Yeah, we still, there are no accidents. It's all on purpose. (laughs) All on purpose. There you go. Well, interesting stuff, Jeff. All right, so that'll do it for the uh, main segment of the show. Let's uh, head into our final segment now, the ever-popular Wax Packs Heroes. And, Mark, you are on a roll right now after having kicked my rear end last week, pulling a $5 card. Yep. It was uh, was not pretty, and and you now lead 6-4. to 
it was a, it's been an amazing comeback. I've I've been really focused. Yeah, and I'm I'm in bad need of a win here. I need to snap this this streak. So today we are opening up 1988 scorecards. I've got two packs of them here. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've given you the option of choosing the pack, yes. and uh, you've kicked my butt, and I've also gotten Lance Johnson in every pack. So That's right. this week, I'm not going to give you the option. I am going to choose one of these packs, and you get the other one. All right, I can deal with that. All right, so here goes my pack right here. Uh, once again, if you are new, we are uh, counting commons are worth nothing, no sense. We have got in front of us, we've got a Beckett's baseball card monthly from May 1992. So we are going by those prices. We take the lower of the uh, the two prices if we do have a card that's worth anything. Just for your knowledge, common players at this time were worth, common cards were worth one cent. But of course, we are, again, not, uh, not counting common players. All right, my first card, Mr. Charlie Liebrandt, pitcher for the uh, Kansas City Royals. Charlie Liebrandt, uh, was he a lefty? Yes, he was. Yeah, crafty one, I believe. Yeah, this picture of him, he looks like a crafty lefty. He's in like, <laughs> he's got to be pitching out of the stretch, but he's kind of crouched down, and it's a very awkward position he's in, but I kind of like it. But that is a, a common card. For uh, Mr. Charlie Liebrand, I believe he was on the Braves for a while too. He was during the uh, during the early '90s when they first started going to the World Series every year. Yep. Next, I've got another Kansas City Royal second baseman, Frank White. I remember Frank White. He played for quite a while, didn't he? Yeah, and he was a solid player. He wasn't oh, like yeah. a, he wasn't a. He's not a borderline Hall of Famer, but he was a solid, solid player. At this point, he had played in the majors for 14 years, all of them with the Royals. Right. But he likewise is a common. Uh, Next, we've got a pitcher for the California Angels, Mike Witt. Mike Witt, I believe, was with the Angels. I remember him only as an Angel, to be honest. I, I, I think so, too. I remember a... Bobby Witt from the Rangers, but obviously Rangers, that's yep. not Mike Witt. Well, so I, I'm when I choose the uh, when I choose the pack, I do just as well as when you do. <laughs> <laughs> so far, so good. Next, we've got uh, righty reliever for the Montreal Expos, Tim Burke. I I, I remember Tim Burke also. You you've gotten some uh, you've gotten some guys that have had some solid careers. They're just cards aren't worth anything. Yeah, I, re- I remember the name. I don't really remember anything specific about him. Tim Burke, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember. I know he pitched for maybe six or seven years um, for the Expos, but I don't remember a whole lot about him. I'm not, I'm, I don't even remember if he was a starter or a reliever. So. Uh, he was a reliever, yeah. Okay. Okay, well, I've got an Oakland Athletic, um, and I, I talked about this gentleman. He's deathly afraid of snakes. Joaquin Andujar. Oh, sure. I'm gonna guess though he's gonna be a common though. Yeah, he was a he was a good pitcher, made his way around, but yeah, doesn't surprise me he's a common. Here's a common Astros shortstop, Craig Reynolds. Craig Reynolds back in the day. Oh yeah, nothing too spectacular, but uh, defensively he would he had good solid hands. He, you know, he played a lot, 
he he came up with the Pirates for two years. He played for the Mariners for two years, played 135, 148 games. Then he went to the Astros where he played over 100 games six out of the nine years that he was there. Nice. So, yeah, was definitely, you know, a, he definitely played. Oh, he was a big league shortstop for sure. My yeah. goodness, just looking at some of these cards, I'm I'm in danger of getting shut out again. Uh, next catcher for the Milwaukee Brewers, Bill Schroeder. Wow, I have no memory of that. I remember this card, but that was because I had every card in this, you know, this set memorized. Yes. But yeah, I don't remember anything about him as a player. Next, we've got uh, shortstop for the Chicago Cubs, Paul Noyce. Noyce. Wow. That, that card not is not Noyce, though. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the epitome of of a common. It's his rookie card, but Paul Noyce didn't do anything. So yeah, yeah. Next we've got Greg Matthews, left-handed pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. Again, not sure. Yeah, n- nothing for me either. I- am I going to have to just take solace in how many of these guys have mustaches again? Because I'm getting <laughs> nothing. It's 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 not looking good so far. But I mean, you never know. We, we could have late late inning heroics right here. Uh, next, I got a lot of lefty pitchers, though. I got a lot of guys that tracked a lot of miles. Uh, Steve Trout, New York Yankees. Oh, sure. Former Mariner, too. Uh, yeah, I believe Steve Trout was involved in one of the trades between the Yankees and the A's for Ricky Henderson. Ah. But, uh, yeah, not surprisingly, he is a common. Uh, here's a name. I doubt it's going to be worth anything, but Tom Pagnozzi, catcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. Pagnozzi, Pagnozzi, let's call the whole thing off. Well, that's his rookie card, and Ooh. that right there is worth five cents. They, you're on the board. I'm on the board. Big Tom. Uh, next, uh, Seattle Mariner infielder, Domingo Ramos. Domingo Ramos. I don't. I, I remember this card again, but I don't know anything about it. I'm just fascinated by the back of his card because he has got 12 years of stats here, four of which are in the major leagues. <laughs> like, <laughs> dude toiled in the minors for a long time. Uh, next, we've got a right-handed starter with a sweet mustache for the Phillies, Kevin Gross. How sweet is the mustache? Uh, it's, it's not quite Tom Selleck, mm. uh, not thick, but I mean, you, you know, uh, Tom had a kind of a, a longer space between the bottom of his nose and his top lip and it was just full of hair. I don't yeah. think Kevin Gross has as much space, so he can't quite match the mass, but it's a good solid stash. That, that works. But, uh, that card is a common. Uh, next, we've got Ellis Burks, center fielder, Boston Red Sox. Ellis Burks was around right at the same time as Mike Greenwell, I believe. Yes, and... absolutely. This is his rookie card. And oh, nice. And it is also worth 30 cents. Oh, oh now I'm in trouble. Yeah, now you are because <laughs> one card like that can win the game. But That's yeah, right. Ellis Burks, I remember him and Mike Greenwell patrolling the outfield and yep. those were uh, they had a good good run there with the with the red Sox. yep guy hoffman lefty for the uh, lefty reliever for the uh, reds 
the reason I know him is because he came up in a Wax Packs Heroes before. <laughs> now, are we sure it's not Guy Hoffman? Are we is sure he Canadian? That... Well, he was born in Ottawa, then it's Illinois. <laughs> Did you know there was an Ottawa, Illinois? <laughs> no, but that just throws me off because I knew Ottawa. it was. <laughs> I'm going to go with Guy. It's oh, Ottawa. Guy Hoffman. Maybe he's got a different pronunciation entirely because he's from a Canadian named city in Illinois. <laughs> Next, Mike Balecki, righty oh, pitcher for the Bucks. Mike Balecki, absolutely. He is a common. And we have got a 1988 rookie prospect card, which should perk your, your ears that it's a, a rookie prospect card. It is, and I remember this guy from the Mariners more than anybody, but he was on the Blue Jays at this point, Rob Ducey. Oh, sure. Yeah, Rob Ducey. I remember him being um, mostly, he, he, was, he was Canadian, wasn't he? I believe he was. He, beyond being, uh, yes, he was Toronto, Canada. There you go. And he played for Toronto, I remember, yep. Came for up a while. And uh, I do remember him as a Mariner, though, for just a couple years, sure. All right, so I was not shut out. I'm actually happy with my score there. Yeah, that's going to be tough to catch you. 38 cents. That might be a high for me in the last couple of <laughs> go-rounds. Yeah. All right, so Mark, it's your turn now. Uh, I'm opening pick your the other pack. Yeah, opening your pack. I, <laughs> right off the bat, I'm a little frustrated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> your first card is Mark Langston. Nice. Lefty again. We got to pull in a lot of lefties tonight. Surfer dude, hard thrower. Yeah, and we just talked about him because he. And this is actually kind of good because we talked about him uh, a show or two ago that he had a. Again, I don't want to call it a heart attack, but he had something that yes. was life threatening when the Angels were in Houston at the end of the season. Uh, he was attended to immediately. He did. Uh, I, I've read that he actually made it back to Anaheim and uh, was at the Angels' uh, final series of the year. So uh, he wasn't working, but he was up and about, and that's good news. So that is good sounds news. like Mark Langston's okay. Excellent. Uh, his card is worth three cents. I feel like hey. we've pulled this exact card, this exact pack before, <laughs> because next is Steve Sachs. <laughs> hey, Steve Alto Sachs, absolutely. Dodgers second baseman. Did he have a plan for the Yankees towards the end of his yep, career? Yep, he did. And he yeah. played for the A's as well. He is worth three cents. Yeah, I look, that's two for two, though, on as far as scoring. Yeah, I know. You're chipping away, and you've only gotten two cards so yeah. far. Uh, here we go. Uh, I've, I've made this joke before, but noted uh, necklace enthusiast and grumpy old man, Bob Brindley, catcher for the San Francisco Giants. Yep. yep. We have discussed Bob before. He is a common. He got in some hot water for some ridiculous comments uh, during a Diamondbacks broadcast earlier this year. Next, we've got another giant. I remember this name very well. Second baseman, Robbie Thompson. Oh, Robbie Thompson. Yeah, absolutely. Had a little bit of power. Good defense. Uh, pretty all-around solid player, if I remember Yeah, he was right. a good... He was second baseman uh, when Matt Williams was at third. Will Clark was at first. And I think Jose Uribe was their shortstop. Yeah, yeah. And then you right. had Mitchell in left. You had the Hackman in right, and I'm not going to remember. You had Brenly behind the plate. I'm not going to remember who was the center fielder for the Giants. Oh, man. Uh, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> and that's going to kind of bother me 
we could <laughs> why don't uh, why don't you pull it up on the google machine there and see if you can in the 1988 the uh, giant center fielder while uh, i pull your next card brett butler brett butler yep uh and then also on that team candy maldonado oh sure mike aldretti mike enough aldretti uh craig def leppertz yes ernest riles i liked ernie riles oh, ernie riles yeah absolutely and then kurt manwaring was the second catcher kurt what is that man wearing Oh, very nice. Yeah, yes. they've got a lot of names. I'm not going to just go down and read through all these names, but there's a lot of a lot of uh, scrap iron was on that team. Phil Garner at oh, the age geez. of 39. I love Phil Garner, absolutely. <laughs> all right, but uh, Robbie Thompson is a common. That was a long time we spent on a common. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot we started with Robbie Thompson. <laughs> all right, your next poll is uh, another lefty starter. This one for the Indians. Greg Swindell. Greg Swindell had a nice long career as a starter. Pitched, uh, let me think now. Greg Swindell pitched, he started like mid 80s. Yep, and he pitched for quite a while. Six was his rookie year. I remember him, yeah, I remember him as a Cleveland Indian player. Yeah, but I he do. He did pitch for the played. Astros at some point. Yeah, well, he is worth three cents. So you hey. are you are chipping away. Slowly but surely. Are there enough cards? Uh, you're only like five in, five or six in, so you've got a chance here. Now, I did not know this guy was still playing in 1988. Rick Dempsey. Jeez, he was? His rookie season was 1969. (laughs) Wow. That's a long career. I believe he played for pretty much everybody, too, but mostly um, I remember him as an Oriole. Twins, Yankees, Orioles, Indians, and... I guess he he probably man I think he managed the Rangers. I don't know if he played for him or not. Oh sure, yeah. All right, your next card that that is a comment. Uh, your next card, I'm going to give you a, a hint here because we've had him before, nicknamed the Governor. Oh man, see, and it's not Sean Casey. This I know. Nope, that's the mayor. That's right. Oh man, I'm drawing a blank on it too. Complete blank. Uh, Jerry Brown. Jerry Brown. One of these times you're going to remember. Yeah, well, it's only like eight times I've failed that question. <laughs> uh, he is a common. Uh, next, we've got outfielder for the Astros, Terry Poole. Terry Swimming Pools, absolutely. He he was uh, he was a solid like fifth outfielder kind of guy, and he, he played a decent amount. Yeah, a lot for the Astros too. He is likewise a Canadian, but you didn't know that. No. All right, here's your first Hall of Famer. This. I'm guessing this isn't going to do a whole bunch of damage because this is 1988, so it's kind of in the middle of his career. Paul Molitor. Oh, the great Paul Molitor, as we've discussed, uh, did so many great things during his career, and definitely a Hall of Fame uh, baseball card like that is worth... Three cents. Three cents. Okay, well, again, you know, if if the object were to pull the most three-cent cards, I'm way ahead. You are way ahead, yes. Uh, Next, we've got... Boy, how many lefties between just... Position players, and uh, last week it was mustaches. This week it's lefties. Uh, right fielder for the Montreal Expos, Mitch Webster. I have no recollection of Mitch Webster. I remember Mitch Webster. I remember his name. I couldn't tell you anything about him other than I I know he played for the Expos at some point. Yeah, He is a common. Uh, next we've got the straw man, Daryl Strawberry. Nice. Let's see what this one, this one will be worth something. Uh-oh, that one is a 10-cent card right there. Oh, my. 
Look out. So you are at 22 cents right now. You have got six cards left. And six you're 16 cents down. Oh, man. I got, I've got to average. If I average three cents a card. I, I know. Now, yeah. you're going to take a hit here because I can tell you this is a common Manny Trio infielder <laughs> for the Cubs. Oh, sure. Yeah. That's definitely a common. And I, I, I'll look them up just in case there's an error. <laughs> you know, an That's error right. card. We had the error card thing going <laughs> Last on. Last week, yeah. A possibility. Uh, left-handed pitcher with a sweet mustache. So this is like a double double winner. Uh, Paul Kilgus. Paul Kilgus. Jeez, yeah. I remember, I don't think he played for a long, long time. But well, this is his Cub? rookie card. Rookie card for the Rangers, which is worth okay. nothing. But I thought I remember him as a cub. I just remember the name. I really don't remember who he played for. I remember that name, Kilgus. Well, I remember yeah. Sean Kilgus. That's who I'm thinking of. But uh, this is Paul Kilgus. Yes. All right. Next, uh, we've got. I believe this gentleman just passed away a little while ago. Uh, here he is pitching for the Cubs. I know he pitched for the A's. I believe in either '90 or '91. Scott Sanderson. Oh sure. Yeah, I remember him as a Cub. Pitched for quite a while, if I remember Pitched right. for the Cubs. I think he pitched for the Yankees as well. But uh, he is a common. Uh, next, we've got Gene Garber, relief pitcher for the Kansas City Royals. I remember I remember Gene Garber. I remember him pitching for the Royals. I remember the name. Wow, he, he was a rookie in 1970. So he's wow. just like one year less in the major leagues than Rick Dempsey at this point. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, maybe he was a crafty righty. Crafty righty. Uh, Next, we've got a pitcher for the New York Yankees, Bill Gullickson. Bill Gullickson. No, don't remember that one either. I remember him just because he was on the Yankees when Ricky was. That's that's how I remember him. Okay, fair enough. Uh, But that is worth nothing. So you're down to your final card. You're 16 cents down, and. It's not Lance Johnson, but it is somebody that we seem to pull in every, in at least one pack every single week, and it is uh, old penitentiary face Jeffrey Leonard. Jeffrey, don't call me Jeff Leonard. Yes, the Hack Man. He ain't no sixteen cents. I'll tell you that. He is a common at this point. So you have finished with twenty-two cents. Oh. I finally break the streak. It was a battle. And I crawled to within one. The score is now Mark 6, Jeff 5. Uh, well, congratulations, man. I, I was starting to feel bad winning all the time, so I'm okay with it. <laughs> I think you won like four in a row. Because I, I, I had a yeah, healthy so. lead at one point. Yeah, ever since we stopped counting commons. Yeah. Well, in yeah, fact, I think once we went to, once I ordered this old Beckett, I think that's when you really started, when yes. you really jumped up. Hey, one thing I want to jump in with here real quick. Uh, Bill Gullickson actually won 20 games in 1991. I just thought I'd show Wow, really? Yeah. In I know, 21? 20-game winner, we didn't know who he was. All right, so I'll take the win. Take it any way I can get it. Yeah, what can you do? So that is going to uh, going to wrap up this edition of Two Strike Noise. Uh, if you would like to interact with us throughout the week, we are available. We are active. We are on the internets, on the social media, both on Twitter and 
on Instagram. You can find us at Two Strike Noise. That is at T-W-O Strike Noise. We post things throughout the week. If you want to send us uh, money, uh, we'll set up a Venmo account. We don't have one currently, sure. but we'll, we'll be happy to do that. Just DM us. We hope your expectations aren't of anything. <laughs> Mark, this was fun. Do you want to do it again next week? I am all for doing it again next week. Absolutely. All right. It is a plan. I'll mark it down on the calendar. Uh, cool. Hopefully you can join us as well as uh, we will be back with more baseball history and frivolities. So until then, thank you for listening. This has been another edition of Two Strike Noise. Thank you. God bless you. Have a great day. <laughs>